And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. P. Andrew Sandlin, founder and president of the Center for Cultural Leadership. He's an ordained minister, a cultural theologian. He's married with five adult children, three grandchildren. Andrew, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Well, I would say, Dan, it's even more of an honor to be here. I appreciate your work and Redeemer Broadcasting. I know you've been doing it quite a long time now and influencing people for a full-orbed Christian faith in this time. So thanks for having me back. Well, Andrew, I uh, check out your website quite regularly, and um, it's found at DocSandlin.com. There's an article here that you wrote with the title Coronavirus and Culture, and it really caught my eye because um, people are thinking a lot about this today, uh, about the, the virus, and they're feeling the effect in culture. And some of this is, is rather surprising. So could we get started talking about this? Maybe uh, how is it that coronavirus, as your article covers, has become a cultural phenomenon? Yeah, good question, Dan. Um, Of course, uh, most people know what viruses are. They're not living things. Uh, They're parasitic. They need living things. We've known about viruses, though they weren't called that. Uh, Well, almost since the fall, I imagine. Uh, Sometimes they were called plagues in the Bible and uh, elsewhere, as we would say in English. So the virus here is not really the, the variable. The virus is the constant. We know basically how viruses operate. Uh, This one, uh, tragically, has been deadly, as many viruses are. Uh, Compared to the worst ones, it's fairly mild, like compared to Ebola, for example, because most people, the vast majority of people, do recover, but it does uh, seriously attack uh, the elderly and those that are immunocompromised. But that's a known factor, basically. I mean, we don't know the specifics of this virus, specifically, Uh, how it uh, impacts people's lungs at every point. But we do know in general about viruses. Uh, But what is a little different this time is the human response, the cultural response. Uh, That's the variable. and So that's the cultural dimension. Uh, So in many ways, it's not so much the uh, epidemiological and health dimension, not that it's unimportant. Of course it's important. But what's important to consider more and to ponder more, perhaps, is the cultural dimension and how people have responded to it. Uh, People have responded, particularly some people in authority have responded to this virus in ways virtually no one historically has. So something has culturally changed to cause the response to this virus as opposed to earlier viruses to change, and that's uh, largely what this article is about. Yeah, and um, I'll just give one a quick example. Um, the other day someone told me that they were out in public and that um, someone was not wearing a mask. And so because of that, someone else got very irate, uh, extremely angry, and started um, bawling them out in public that they weren't wearing a mask. And um, I know that our governor has asked us to all to wear masks, and, and I wear one when I go out in public. But to fly off the handle at a person you don't even know is um, kind of a shocking response, it seems. It is, and that's fairly uh, unprecedented uh, historically. 
the uh, the medical benefits with regard to masks is um, not absolutely certain. It can certainly be helpful in some cases, particularly those that are immunocompromised or ill. Uh, it's not entirely clear that it helps healthy people who are uh, wearing uh, masks. That may protect. A mask may keep someone who is unhealthy from infecting others. Uh, but in some way, though I like you, in some areas of California where I live, it's you can't really go into establishments without masks. So my wife and I have to. My wife recently flew to Washington D.C. from San Francisco, and of course, on planes, you most planes, uh, it's required by law <clears throat> that, to, or at least the policy from the from the airlines to wear masks. So you have to. But in some ways, and I think the anecdote you mentioned there, Dan, is interesting. Masks. Um, our first uh, um, an example of what we call today virtue signaling. That is, those that wear the masks truly care about the health of others, whereas those that don't wear masks are showing that they sort of are cavalier and are uh, very uh, careless uh, about others. Um, and so I think that, as well as the notion not proven that everyone wearing a mask is going to make everyone safer, that produces this kind of uh, thinking. And as you indicate there, though, this, is, see, this isn't just a health phenomenon. This actually is a cultural phenomenon. Yes. People treat one another differently if one does, whether one does or does not wear a mask. Yeah, exactly. The other thing I could think of was um, there was a case that I heard about over talk radio where someone was driving down a street uh, in a town and uh, in a car. And I don't know much more about it, but people walking that kind of felt superior um, gave them um, some kind of a symbol with their hand, a very nasty symbol that they were driving down the street. And um, these sort of things um, don't bode well for friendliness and for friendship, um, neighbors and that sort of thing. No, they don't. It's, that's, and that's another example of culture. Uh, society harming itself. Uh, a related issue, Dan, I'm sure this has happened many times in New York, is the, the sort of reporting and tattling that's going on. My, this is, uh, we know it quite well. My youngest daughter is a deputy sheriff in a neighboring county, and she said that to some of the calls and to report lack of observance of wearing masks and so on and not social distancing are amusing. About two weeks ago, they got a call from a lady who said, I'm calling to report a man because he's walking on the sidewalk and coughing. And uh, she, my daughter took the call and she says, well, ma'am, there's nothing we can really do about that. I mean, <laughs> it's not illegal to cough or be out on the sidewalk. Uh, so, But this, this notion that um, I guess one can see uh, how that in uh, severely dictatorial regimes and police states, one could turn into, uh, one could uh, deliver recriminations against a neighbor just by reporting them to the police. It really is socially destructive, even at that even at that level of simply reporting people and causing suspicion among neighbors. Uh, so this has brought out th this scenario and the responses have brought out the worst in a lot of people tragically. Yes, and um, one of the follow-up um, items that, that some people want to do is have cell phones um, basically interconnected and warning each other and tracking each other, just severe uh, public tracking. And I can tell you, if my cell phone starts to be used that way, I'm going to turn the thing off. Now, absolutely. Um, 
related to this, of course, we what is our standard during times like this? Well, the standard is the same as in other times, and that is the, God's word, his law. Well, interestingly enough, God's law in the Old Testament does provide the principle of quarantine. There's nothing wrong with quarantine. In fact, the Bible requires it, but it's a quarantine of uh, those that are uh, very sick. Right. And God uh, lays down and establishes his guidelines for that. In fact, if you, we don't have time now to go into detail, but if you'll study historically, one reason, tragically, that many of the Jews were hated <laughs> is that during uh, times of virus or plague, it was called at the time, they often would be much less sick, and it was thought that there were strange, you know, satanic evil reasons for that. But it wasn't. They followed the Old Testament quarantine laws, <laughs> and therefore, by and large, the, the Jews were often healthier than the Gentiles in uh, in Gentile cultures. Uh, so there's no the Word of God does speak in cases like this. Uh, but sadly, when you don't have objective standards, then everybody makes up his own laws, and that's kind of what happened. In fact, I think what we haven't talked about yet, Dan, and maybe you were going to ask it, perhaps I'm anticipating it, was the um, the largely the government response. To this, which by and large, your state, of course, New York, and Governor Cuomo, and out here, Governor Newsom, has largely been uh, flatly contra-biblical. Yes, and I, my concerns are run in many facets there. I'm, I'm very concerned about the government response. I, I know that there are civil magistrate, and we must honor them, respect them, um, but we do have a constitutional republic, and so there's this interaction, this dynamic that goes on where I'm a voter, and we have a stake in this <laughs> this game. That's right. And, and we have uh, established rights and privileges, and those rights flow from the fact that well, it flows from the Christian faith if we go back to the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. So I'm very concerned when uh, we're seeing our constitutional rights run roughshod. Um, th- now, can you speak to this, Andrew? Today our guest is P. Andrew Sandlin. Um, we're all concerned about life. In fact, we're we're more pro-life than the either of the two governors, I'm sure of oh, that. by far, by far. But to raise up this thing of life, and it's very important, is that the only criterion by which we make cultural decisions? Boy, that's a great question. I've written about that. You're right. Uh, Life is vitally important. But life itself is not our ultimate standard. Of course, uh, the Word of God is our ultimate standard. And we had uh, at one point your own governor, Mayor Cuomo, said, I mean, we'll do something, even anything to protect one life. Right. Uh, that's not a biblical view. Uh, in fact, I would go so far as to say it's not life per se that we should be concerned about, but a particular kind of life. Um, according to the Word of God, uh, while the, the pro-life position, particularly protecting the unborn, is just a vital position, the Bible does, for example, support capital punishment in limited cases. So life itself is not an absolute standard. Uh, And I guess one fundamental point that you've really touched on several times there very well is we have to understand life within the context of a particular culture and uh, other sort of requirements in the environment of the Word of God, which is to say, in this case, uh, life should occur within the context of liberty, uh, ordered liberty, individual liberty. 
So um, a good, a good we, we've known this historically. Uh, this country was willing to sacrifice, this country alone was willing to sacrifice many thousands of lives of young men and a few young women in World War II to secure liberty. So it was not just life that was a main concern. Liberty also is a main concern. And in some cases, life is worth expending uh, to defend uh, liberty. And uh, we've done that historically many times. Yes. Uh, Patrick Henry says, give me liberty or give me death. <laughs> so sometimes death is preferable to a life without liberty. Yes. Um, and you were talking about constitutional republics, and that's an aspect of our Western culture, Western civilization, shaped by, as you pointed out, Christianity, uh, because Christ came to give liberty, ordered liberty for sure, not license, not antinomianism, but nonetheless liberty within the broad bounds of God's moral law. Uh, but, and this is the final point I want to make on this, Dan, when you have governors, and I'm not just picking on these two, Newsom and Cuomo, this is true of many other governors, but when you elevate life itself, and you're concerned most of all to, uh, with the security of life, because you have no hope in God, no hope in an afterlife, and no hope in a new heavens and a new earth, no strong belief in the necessity of liberty, then the only thing you will defend at all costs is human life. And that is, and our Reformed forebears would understand this better than many today, a what we call reductionistic worldview. We're not looking at all the factors. We're looking at only one factor, the health of people. And in this case, mostly simply the elderly, who are very important, of course, and the immunocompromised. Yes, we must look at their health, but we must look at everybody's health, and we must also look at all other factors. That doesn't happen when you have people that have lost the Christian worldview. Yes, so true. Um, one of the questions you ask in your article is, will the consequences of the social-political responses to coronavirus permanently find their way into our culture? And I think I answered that. I certainly hope not, or something like that, right? Um, <laughs> the fact is, uh, there are a couple of points here, and we haven't mentioned this one, and perhaps I can segue now. We've talked about the problems of what I would call statism, the statist ideology, the immediate attempt and rush to expand the role of the state and suffocate rights. But let's uh, not let the church off the hook. Uh, yes. often, as a res often as a result of the statist action, uh, many churches who have their own God-given jurisdiction, uh, in our tradition, our particular tradition, you're in, you're in mind, Dan, we call it sphere sovereignty, basically the idea that three main spheres, those others, but particularly the family, church, and state, have their own specific God-given calling, unique to that specific spheres that uh, other spheres shouldn't trample on. Now, they should work together, of course, uh, that's God's way, but each should insist on and demand its own uh, independent authority within its own sphere, not lording it over another. Well, it seems pretty clear that in this case, the state, uh, it's obvious, unquestionable, that uh, the state has lorded it over and squashed the family and particularly the church. Now, here's where I fault the church, Dan. Um, churches massively canceled services. I don't fault those churches who took time to study the Word of God and pray, who may have had a number of elderly in the congregation who lived in urban areas, close around like New York City, and uh, those in San Francisco, uh, those with the immunocompromised, maybe it was, according to the church leaders, a good idea for their church not to meet or to meet in a different way. 
That wasn't the problem. The problem is that many, the vast majority of churches didn't even make that calculation. It was not to say, what does the Word of God say about this? What is our responsibility to health? What is our responsibility to the physical health, not just the spiritual health, the physical health of our members? What is our responsibility? What is our view? What is God calling us to do? No, too many just sort of collapsed in front of these status demands and said, well, obviously, according to Romans 13, we have to obey the state at all times, which, of course, the Bible doesn't say or teach, and therefore basically had a um, just canceled services and had services online. Again, I'm not saying that that's wrong in every single case by any means, but I'm saying the church should have had a principled response, and too many churches did not do that. Yeah, that's a very good point. And, uh, of course, our church uh, had to close. Um, we did have and do have a number of seniors who were a lot closer to New York City and all of that. Now, um, let's talk a little bit more about the church. You mentioned something really important. I just wanted to hear it again. This thing of uh, spheres, the family, the church, the state, uh, that's a very helpful model, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, I think one of the, in fact, I think it's one of the foundation stones if you're going to have a Christian culture, uh, is to understand that uh, these three main spheres that God established have their own realm of authority and their unique responsibilities. I mean, let's take quickly the church. The responsibility of the church is the body of Christ, the called, the ecclesia, the called out, assembled, and by the way, that means physically assembled, people of God, uh, maintaining uh, Christian orthodoxy throughout history, purity of belief, and um, they have a monopoly on the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacrament. Some churches would call them ordinances. These Now think about that for a minute, Dan, and your audience. These are things that aren't given to another sphere. The state is not authorized to preach the word or, or maintain orthodoxy. As much as our families are important, it's not the responsibility of the father and mother to maintain, let's say, Nicene Orthodoxy. That's the responsibility <laughs> of the church and church leadership. On the other hand, the rear, bringing children into the world and rearing children and those close family bonds, well, that's something that a, only a family can do. Right. That's not the responsibility of the state. Now, if you, lest you think that it could be otherwise, let me remind your listeners that uh, uh, dictators all the way from Plato down to Pol Pot believe that children should be born and immediately be taken away from parents and should be raised communally, raised by the state. Now, many of us find that abhorrent, and it is abhorrent biblically, but it has happened historically. It has happened many times because the state has intruded on the family. And, of course, in some cases, the state has dictated wrongly to the church to tell the church what to do. In a few cases, historically, in the medieval era, sometimes the church has wrongfully dictated uh, to the state and told the state what to do. Uh, all of these have their own unique calling. And what really is dangerous is when one sphere, either on the one hand, begins to overtake and commandeer the responsibilities of another sphere, or, on the other hand, back off and allow one of those other spheres to intrude upon its own calling. That's why sphere sovereignty is really important. Yeah, it's very helpful. And it's it's very important for our church leaders to clearly understand their responsibility, not overstep their bounds as regards to the family or the state, but be willing to um, talk the Word of God to the civil magistrate and say, this is what God requires. 
Yes, that you have touched on something. In fact, that's been one of the great failures of the church. Uh, though the church cannot commandeer the state, the church has the power, according to the word of God, of the keys, the keys of the kingdom, not the power of the sword. The state alone has that power of physical coercion, according to Romans 13. However, uh, the church has the responsibility to, to declare the word of God, not only within its sort of narrow focus of sort of Sunday worship, but to declare the authority of the word of God to the magistrate. I mean, we see it in the Old Covenant Church, Israel, the prophets of God declaring the truth to the kings. We see it also in the New Testament, when Paul, speaking before political rulers, uh, and declaring the word of God. Uh, in fact, the Bible indicates that one reason political rulers often fail, it's easy to criticize them, and they should be criticized, for example, uh, overextending their bounds and their tyranny, but one reason that happens is the church isn't prophetically declaring the word of God and saying, here is where your authority is, here's how you're supposed to enforce the law of God, only appropriate to your sphere, and here's where you're to stop. You don't have the authority to do this. Now, how many churches do that today, Dan? They would say, well, that's, that's sort of violating uh, separation of church and state. But that's just false. While there is a legitimate separation between church and state, there is not a separation between the state and God. Yes. That's a very separate issue. They're separate spheres, but all should be under divine authority disclosed in God's Word. Yes, so very true. Um, one of the inconsistencies, and I alluded at this before, uh, at least here in New York State, and I believe there in California, was that um, um, this this basic setting that says, we want these churches closed, um, but and they're not necessary, but... We want uh, liquor stores to be open. We want Planned Parenthood to be open. And and in there is a complete failure to see the necessity of the church in culture. And um, in the last two minutes remaining, today we're talking with Dr. P. Andrew Sandlin. Uh, Andrew, can you talk to how that the gospel is larger than just, we can say, a churchianity? Oh, yes, so true. It's interesting. So the church was placed on the non-essential list, but of course pharmacies were placed on the essential list. Uh, Dan, that's not a health issue. That's a worldview issue, you see. That's not driven by health concerns. That's driven by a particular worldview. Yes. I think one of the main problems churches, and this is one thing I think I pointed out in the article to which you refer there, is for a long time churches have narrowed their focus to what you have wisely called churchianity. The message of Jesus died to take us to heaven, the message we need to read our Bible every day, and we need to pray, we need to live holy lives, and all of that is true. But the Bible doesn't only contain information, rather, only about those matters. Uh, the Bible is, the, the central theme of the Bible is the Lordship of Christ and the Kingdom of God. So the issue is pressing the Lordship of Christ in every single area of life, and it's not enough to say Jesus is Lord of the Church. Uh, years ago, you'd hear people often say, I've made Jesus Christ king, and uh, he, I've enthroned him uh, in my heart. Well, that's very pleasant and very nice and good, but Jesus doesn't need us to do that. We need to recognize his lordship uh, and obey it in all areas of life. But churches have failed because they have limited the authority of the word to the family, the individual family and church, and not recognize that Jesus is to be lord in all areas of life. And therefore... When this drama arose, they really didn't have the mental architecture, uh, the conceptual, the theological basis 
for declaring the truth in something like this because they thought it was sort of outside the realm of a Christian responsibility or Christian thought. We're paying a heavy price for that, Dan. Uh, so true. Well, thank you very much. Uh, P. Andrew Sandlin has been our guest today. Now, Andrew, there's got to be some folks out there today that saying, you know what, this really strikes home to me personally and could help my church even. Um, I'd like to check this guy out. I'd ch- like to check out the booklets that are available on his website. Can you give us information on how they might do that? You bet. Thanks for doing that, Dan. It's Christian Culture. That's written as though it were one word, christianculture.com. And then uh, the uh, blog is Doc Sandlin, again, written as one word, docsandlin.com. And uh, also on iTunes, you can just use my name, Sandlin, and check for all the audio on uh, iTunes. And I've got a new, uh, CCL has a new e-newsletter called Culture Change. You can sign up for that. It's called at Substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K. You can find that. Or just on Facebook, you can private message me, and P. Andrew Sandlin, and I'll be happy to help out. But, um, yeah, that's that's where you can access all that stuff. Well, it's uh, very helpful to me, and um, on one of our programs, we read books over the air, and Thursday and Friday night, we've been working through this little um, book called For Mission, the Need for Scriptural Cultural Theology. I believe it's written by Joe Boot. Joseph Boot, my dear friend and colleague. It's a wonderful book, you bet. Yep, and we've been enjoying it. Well, Dr. P. Andrew Sandlin, my dear brother, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. I'm grateful, Dan, and for your friendship and all the great work you do. Hope your listeners have benefited and hope to be on again soon. <laughs> you bet. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.